If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab those. Go into Romans chapter 15. If you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs there around you. Uh, page 744 is where you're going. Page 744. We're getting close, closer and closer to wrapping up our time in Romans. We'll end it on Easter Sunday is the plan. And uh, as we are wrapping this up, we just finished a section last week where Paul is, is now moving into another section of this letter where he's now starting to close out the letter. So what we're going to see going uh, for the rest of this book is Paul wrapping things up, um, including things that he started at the beginning in. He's going to say, hey, I'm going to come back around to this now that I've thrown all of this stuff out for you. And, and then he's going to start doing his goodbyes and I'll see you soon. And hey, pray for me in this. And so that's the part of the letter. Now it's tempting to get to these kind of parts of the letter and say, oh, well, I'm past the meat. I, I, I've gotten everything out of this that I need to get. This is just Paul's personal letters. They don't apply now. And so you might just gloss over them or you might be tempted to not even read them. You might just say, well, I'm done. And I hope after this morning and after the next couple of weeks, you're gonna realize you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. So as we, we look at Romans 15, the, the question I wanna put before you this morning as we just kind of warm our brains up to what, what Paul might be doing here and what God might be saying to Paul is what do you live your life for? What's, what's the purpose of your life? Now, I'm acknowledging that when I throw that out there, you're going to come up with things and it may or may not be a right purpose. I'm just asking you, what is the purpose that you live your life for? Because we all live our lives with a sense of purpose and something, or we're searching for that sense of pur purpose. And so then we grasp at, at whatever we can to try to find meaning. So what is it for you that drives the way you live your life, that dictates the decisions you make, how you interact with people in the relationships that you have and find yourself in. What is it that drives you? What is it that if you, if you see this take place, you can say, see, that right there is why I do this. What is your purpose? This morning, we're going to get a glimpse of Paul's purpose, his understanding of what his purpose was. And I'm going to put before you that I think what Paul's going to show us this morning about what his purpose was should also be every believer in Christ's purpose. And here's where we're, we're going this morning. You want to live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel. Live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel. And we're going to see two things as we break that apart uh, and, and look at these verses. The first one's going to be this. Live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel so that Others are made acceptable to God. Now, that's a weird way to word it. I'm taking it straight from Paul, and we'll have to explain that because we wouldn't normally talk like making somebody acceptable. But we live our life for the greater purpose of God's gospel so that others are made acceptable to God. So let's take a look. Romans chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 14. So Paul, having said all that he said up to this point to, to these Roman Christians, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul said some hard things throughout this letter. And so now as he's closing up the letter, he, he's, he's coming back around and he, he says to the people he's writing to that he's never met. Keep this in mind. Paul has never met most of these people. He's met a few of them who have traveled to him or that have traveled with him, but he's never been to Rome yet. And he wants to get there, but he's written some very bold things to these people that many of them he's never seen. And so he wants them to know, hey, I'm satisfied about you, he says. And, and what is Paul satisfied? He's convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness because Paul's been talking about these things that have divided the church. 
preferences, matters of opinions that people were judging or despising one another over. It was causing division. Um, he's talked about how um, people can be enslaved to sin or they can belong to God. He's, he's talked about some hard things, but he says, about you now, let me circle back around. And about you, he says, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, but, but I know as I write some of these things that that's not the case with most of you. I, I know that, that you, guys, you, you guys are not necessarily the ones who are dealing with this. I'm convinced about you that, that you're full of goodness. He goes on and he describes what is that goodness. He says, you're filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He says, I know you know these things. In fact, you know some of these things so well, he says, you're actually able to instruct one another. See, Paul was under no illusion that the church needed him in order to grow. Paul was under no illusion that, they, they, that the church needed a, an apostle or, or someone who is in a higher position of authority in order to grow because he's writing to people that held none of these positions in the church, no apostles in the church of Rome that we know of, none of the, um, the original disciples of Christ in the church of Rome that we know of, just second generation, third generation Christians. And he says to them, you're able to instruct one another. I mean, that should hit you because you don't need me or someone else to get up here and teach you. Now, is there benefit in that? Yes. Is there a biblical basis for that? Yes. But you're not dependent upon us to do that. Some of you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. And you should be right? As we study the scriptures together and as we grow, we should be instructing one another. Paul would say, uh, not Paul, <laughs> um, somebody who wrote Hebrews. We don't know who that was, but the, the author of Hebrews, and I don't even think it's Paul. That was not a slip of any kind. Um, someone who wrote Hebrews, he would say to them, hey, by now, chapter five of Hebrews says, by now you should all be teachers, but instead I've got to backtrack and teach you some basic things. See, the, the, the uh, expectation was as you grow, you should be able to pass on the things that you grow in. You, as you learn more about how God has revealed himself through the scriptures, right? And through, through his spirit, as he helps you to understand how he's revealed himself through the scriptures, you should be able to teach others about that. Well, I can't put it together like a sermon or I can't do no lesson. doesn't matter. That's not, that's not the expectation. This, what I get up here and do and the way I present is merely cultural. It's, it's me making an attempt from a human perspective to put the, the things that I've studied and learned and present them to you in a way that help you to understand so that you can learn. And then, yes, as I study, I'm saying, God, what do you have for us in this? What do you want to say to us through your word? And so then I, I, I try to design, design a sermon to hopefully persuade you to consider that. But that's a packaging thing. That's a, that's a human technique. It's not needed. Right? And so I could, I could just as easily say, you know what, I'm scrapping all of my sermon-based skills, you know, that they teach you in seminary. I don't know why I did air quotes on seminary. It's a real thing. <laughs> I was on a roll, you know? Um, I, I could just get up here and say, let's just walk through and do this, right? And I do that in classroom settings, and many of you do that in classroom settings, and it's, and it's a good way to do that, right? And then there's opportunity for dialogue. Teaching one another, instructing one another does not need to look a particular way. So if you're thinking, I can't do what you do, I can't do what this person does, that's not the point. If you're growing in the scriptures and your understanding of it, you're able to then help others understand it as well uh, to whatever level God has equipped and, and, and enabled you to do so. Paul had that expectation. He says, listen, I'm convinced of you. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge and you're able to instruct one another. Verse 15, he says, but, and he's gonna acknowledge something here, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder 
because of the grace given to me by God. We'll pause there for a minute. So Paul, he's wrapping up this letter and he says, I'm convinced of you. You're full of goodness. You're able to instruct. Now I know, he says, on some points I've written you very boldly, which would have been weird because Paul's not met most of these people. It'd be a very weird thing to write a letter filled with some of the bold things that Paul has said to people you've never met. It, It might come off as presumptuous, it could come off as, Paul, do you know us, right? I mean, and so, so Paul's acknowledging that. I've said some hard things to you. Paul's not apologizing for saying hard things. Paul's not ever afraid to say hard things. He's just acknowledging, I know I've said some hard things. And, and then he's gonna tell, tell them why he did that. But I wanna stop for a moment. It's okay to say hard things to people. You and I should say hard things to people. Speaking truth in love, right, is how Paul would say it in Ephesians. Now, I heard this this week, if I can't, if I I can get this right. Hard words make soft hearts, but soft words make hard hearts. So speaking the truth in love, saying hard words, even if it's, if it requires you being bold and speaking to someone, maybe in a way that's confrontational, that's going to maybe create some conflict. Conflict's not bad in and of itself. It's how you handle a conflict. So, so maybe you're going to say some hard things, some hard truth, right? But God uses that to keep that person's heart soft before him because it leads them to repentance. Um, but then maybe you instead choose to use soft words. You're just going to fluff somebody up, you know, you know blow smoke, right? You're, you're going to make them feel good. You're not going to confront them, not going to call them out on sin that, that is causing destruction in their life, but instead you're going to affirm the sin. You know what you're doing in that spot? You're, you're helping their heart to become more and more callous because you're unwilling to speak boldly. There is a place for believers in Christ to speak to one another hard things. And we should. Unapologetically, we should be pointing one another toward things that are true and things that are right and correcting one another where we get off track in love and in grace, which means as I correct and I, and I instruct, I've got to keep in mind, hey, I could be in that spot two days from now, or I've been in that spot and it was only because someone else has instructed me or corrected me or rebuked me that I've been able to. I told them, I shared with staff a couple weeks ago, I've experienced church discipline in my life. When I was a college student, I was disciplined by the church I attended. I had to go before the elders and I was confronted in my sin by the elders. That was awkward, awkward. But I vividly remember that night and I remember much of what was said. And then after that, I was then held accountable by those, some of those elders. I went through a church discipline process. Now I could have left that church By the grace of God, I stayed because he'd been working on my heart. And so I knew where they were coming from was love. And I knew I was in sin. But hard words make soft hearts. Soft words make hard hearts. Paul says, I've spoken to you very boldly by way of reminder. But he then says, but I've done that because of the grace given to me by God. Now, this is Paul referring to um, his conversion. You can read about this in Acts chapter nine is the primary place where uh, Paul was going and he was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader going to persecute Christians, right? And he had a letter in his hand headed to Damascus where he was authorized by the authorities to go and take Christians, followers of the way, take them out of their homes, bring them back to Jerusalem imprison them. And in some cases, we know that they were put to death because in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is stoned at the end of Acts chapter seven, it says, 
and they laid their coats down. Well, why did they do that? Because they need to be able to wind up and throw, right? So they laid their coats down at the foot of a man, a young man named Saul, which was his Jewish name or his, his Roman name, right? Saul, Paul, he just, it was common to have two names, but he was converted. So he's on this road and Jesus reveals himself to, to Paul, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Saul says, well, who, who are you, Lord? Which would be like just saying, who are you, sir? He wasn't acknowledging yet that Jesus was God. Who are you, sir? So I know who I'm persecuting. And he says, it's me, Jesus, right? The one who you're persecuting. Paul was converted that day. One of the things that God revealed, this is found in Acts chapter nine, verse 15. One of the things that, Paul re- uh, that God revealed to Ananias in, um, in Acts, because this guy was gonna go meet Paul. And God said to this guy, it's Annas or Ananias. I, I could be getting those confused. Starts with an A and it has some N's in it and it has an S in it, right? And he says, and he says to, to, to this guy, he says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake because he is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Paul was shown grace. Paul never forgot that grace. He says, so because of the grace given me, what's that grace? The, the, the conversion that God brought about on that road and the authority that he's given him to go to the non-Jewish people. All right, let's look at verse 16. So because of the grace given to me, 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that grace that God's given me, it's to be a minister of, the, of, of Jesus Christ. So someone who ministers on behalf of, who takes the words, the message, the instructions of Jesus Christ, who takes the way of living of Jesus Christ. And I'm bringing that to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And he describes it as he's this minister of Christ Jesus in the Gentile, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. In the priestly service. I'm gonna clarify something. Depending on your background, when you hear priest, you go one place. That's not Paul's expectation. That's not Paul's understanding. So typically you might go priest. Priest is a a person, a man usually, who represents God to the people and stands in between the people and God. And so then in order to have access to God, you go through the priest. Not Paul's understanding. By the way, also not a biblical understanding. Because Paul would say in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, the man, right? So there's nobody who stands between you. You don't have to go through me or any other person in order to have access to God. You go through Christ and Christ alone. And then you are given free access to the Father, to God. So Paul, when he says in the priestly service, he doesn't mean now you have to come through me and I'm gonna mediate the blessings of God to you and come confess your sins to me and I will absolve those sins or, or come to me and I will, I will give you what you need to be able to, to recover from this. And he's not, he's not doing any of that kind of stuff. That's not what he means. What he simply means when he says in the priestly service is the part of priestly service that means representing God. I'm representing God to the people and I'm interceding on behalf of the people to God. He's not standing in the, ma- in the way in the middle. He's bringing the message of God. He's ministering on behalf of God to the Gentiles, to the people. That's all he means there. And then he tells us why. So that, let's take a look at that. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. So here's where I get my wording, right? So that we might make others acceptable to God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what Paul's saying, he's not saying that the Gentiles are going to bring an offering. He's saying the Gentiles are the offering being made to God. So Paul sees himself in a bigger picture here. So when Paul says, I'm a minister of Christ for the gospel, and I'm, I'm doing this on behalf of the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles, the offering of the Gentiles, may be acceptable, he's pulling that right out of Isaiah. He understands that this is part of God's plan to bring the nations. Remember I said last week, the nations, when the Old Testament talks about nations, it's talking about the non-Jewish people. So you've got the, the Jewish people, oftentimes called the nation of Israel, but when it talks about the nations, it's talking about the non-Jewish people. Paul understands that this is a reference to Isaiah uh, 66. I'm going to pull it up here. Verse 19 and 20. Isaiah 66, it's the end of Isaiah. He's talking about a day when, when the nations are going to be gathered before the Lord and all will acknowledge who the Lord is. But he talks about these non-Jewish nations. So, and I will set a sign among them. This is God speaking. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations. So from these non-Jewish nations, these Gentile nations, there are going to be some who survive these things that are going to take place. They're going to believe in God and God's going to send them to the nations. And then he lists some of the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, and to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. You see what's going on? God is saying, there's going to be a time where I'm going to send people to these nations that are far off outside of the known world at that time so that they can know about God because he's sending them to people who have not heard about God, his fame, or seen his glory. And they, the people that are sent, the survivors, they shall declare my glory among the nations. And here's where, where Paul's drawing on. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations, okay, non-Jewish, as an offering to the Lord. Paul sees himself fulfilling that. Paul says, as I'm going to the nations, as I'm bringing the gospel, as I'm ministering on behalf of Christ and bringing the gospel and non-Jewish people are responding by faith, they are an offering to the Lord and God is fulfilling and accomplishing what he said he would do in the time of Isaiah. It is happening in Paul's day. Paul saw himself in that purpose and that greater purpose of God's gospel. And he saw himself as helping, being a part of bringing others or making others acceptable to God as an offering. And so we go back to Romans now. So the offering of the Gentiles so that they may be acceptable. Now, acceptable in the sense of, let me backtrack. Paul says this in Romans chapter one, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all the unrighteousness of humanity. And then he'll go through all the way through chapter three and he'll describe different groups of humanity. And you and I cannot escape any of those groups, right? We're in one of those groups. There's no person after Paul goes through these groups, the Jewish person, the non-Jewish person, the moralistic person, I just live a good life, right? Or the complete pagan person who just lives for their own pleasures and defies God. He says, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, all people are under the wrath of God. Therefore, if all people are under the wrath of God, we're not acceptable to God. In chapter six, Paul would say that we are enemies of God. That's a bad thing, to be an enemy of the true living God. Paul would say you're enemies. So we're not, we're not acceptable to God on our own. It is only through what God has done in Christ. And so chapter three, verse 21 through 26 is, is where he, he really first kind of unpacks that, that God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice on behalf of sinful people. 
He sent an innocent, um, um, worthy person who lived an, uh, a perfect life before God so that then he goes and he's an acceptable offering to God and he dies on behalf of sinners. Taking what we deserved and putting it upon himself. He dies and then three days later, he raises from the dead to a new type of spiritual life. Overcoming sin, overcoming death. He's the true victor. And so now those who respond to God's gospel, which is summed up in that, those who respond by faith in what Christ has done, those are the ones who become acceptable to God. Not because of anything you or I have done. I can't contribute anything to what Christ has done. I can't make up for anything that Christ lacks because Christ lacks nothing. And his sacrifice, it was complete. It was absolutely uh, necessary. And so he stayed there on that cross until all that needed to be done was done. That's why he says, it is finished. He stayed there. He could have died at any point. How do I know that? Because it says, he says it is finished. And then he says, Father, into my hands I commit your spirit, my spirit. And then he, he lend, uh, yielded over his life. Nobody takes it. Jesus even said that before he got on the cross. Nobody takes my life, but I give it freely. How do you become acceptable? You are in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you become this sweet aroma before God because it's not, it's not your uh, sinfulness, it's not your uh, attempts at righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that go up before the Father, which is what Paul calls you're justified. You've been declared right before God. You are made right with God. By faith in Christ, you become acceptable. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified means made holy, set apart. Um, sometimes we use that word in a more theological sense. And what we mean is we might talk about three senses of your salvation or three tenses of your salvation. Sometimes we'll talk about um, your justification when you get saved, right? That, that instantaneous moment when, when God changes your heart and you're made new. Then we might talk about the third one, which... Huh. A third one where um, it's what, what happens when Christ comes back, right? Where your redemption, your salvation is made complete. Your body is redeemed. So your soul, your body are both redeemed, completely rid of sin. That's called glorification. That's, that's where we're headed, right? And then sometimes we'll talk about that one in the middle, which is what we're living now. And we call it sanctification. It's that ongoing process, and it's progressive, which means it just builds on itself, right? It's that ongoing process where God is shaping and molding us into the image of Christ. He's, he's letting the Spirit work on us, reveal things to us. Um, he would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, that you were predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son. If you're a believer in Christ, God's purpose for you, his goal for you is ultimately that you will be conformed, shaped or molded into the image of Christ. You will look, act, think more like Christ every day and over time, right? It's progressive. It's not, a, it's not an even uh, climb. Sometimes there's back steps, sometimes there's forward steps, but it's ultimately, it's moving forward toward that goal. Sometimes we'll talk about sanctification that way. What Paul means here though, is simply you're set apart by the Holy Spirit. You are an offering. Uh, um, you are made acceptable by God. And the reason that is the case is because you've been set aside by the Holy Spirit. Because when, when we are believers in Christ, God gives us his spirit. The spirit indwells us, lives inside of us, never leaves us. Everywhere you go, you are the holy place of God. God does not dwell in buildings 
You don't have to go to a building to meet with God. Can there be more peace found in a building or a particular room? Sure, absolutely. But you don't need to go to a building to meet with God. If you're a believer in Christ, God is with you always. He indwells you. His spirit is in you. Uh, Paul would say in Galatians, Christ is living in you, right? So that means wherever you go, you're the holy place of God. Whoever you interact with, they're interacting with someone who has the very presence of God, right? Which is why when we gather as believers in Christ together, um, yes, the Spirit of God is always with us individually, but when we gather together, there's also then a unique experience of the Spirit as we're all gathered together in the same Spirit and dwells all of us. This is all important, and the reason I took extra time to explain that is because this is important for us to know. This is the why behind why we make disciples. This is the why behind discipleship. This is the why behind the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is the why, and evangelism is certainly included in that, but evangelism is one part of discipleship. Right? So, so this is why we do what we do. And so it, it gets lost oftentimes because we get up and we say, believer in Christ, you should go share the gospel. And you're like, okay, that's what Christians do. We share the gospel. But you have no understanding as to why. You need to understand the why and then from that flows the action. Why do I need to share the gospel? Why do I need to go make disciples of nations? Because people are not acceptable before God. They are at odds with God. They're enemies with God. They are under the wrath of God. And that's where they will stay unless they are transferred from the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of the beloved son, Christ. And that happens through the gospel, through faith in Christ. And so I go and I share the gospel and I make disciples and I teach people to obey all that Christ commands us because I want people to be acceptable before God. I can't make them acceptable. I can't change hearts, but I can instruct, I can teach, I can model so that then God uses that and takes them and makes them in Christ acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's why we do what we do. So live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel. And one of the reasons we do it is so that others are made acceptable to God. The other reason we find in these verses is so that, the, so that others know the gospel of God. There are people who don't know about God. They don't know the gospel of God. And so Paul helps us to understand so that others might know the gospel. So look with me at verse 17. So in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I'm going to go to verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And I'm going to stop there and go back now. So in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud for my word. That's the only place Paul has reason to be proud of his work. Paul is not advocating for boasting. Paul is not advocating for bragging. Paul is not advocating for any of those things and couching it in Christian terms. Paul has no place for elevating yourself over God. None. He says, only in Christ Jesus then that I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And Paul's not being self-righteous when he says that because he goes on and he says in verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And when Paul says, except what Christ has accomplished through me, he's not bragging. He's not saying, look how spiritual I am that God chose me to do this. See, that's sin coming and tainting something that's good. 
Paul is acknowledging to the extent that I can see that God has worked in me for the sake of his gospel, that's the thing I'm gonna boast in. So the focus of the boasting, the focus on the, on the bragging is God. God and God alone, right? It is, it is not me, and let me put God in there so that I, I kind of cover myself, right? No, Paul says, I will only venture to speak of what God has done through Christ in me or through me and for the purpose of bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Now, Paul says that to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul does not mean he's creating religious robots who know how to behave and act Christian. That's, that's far from Paul, right? We hear obedience and we think it's a bad word. And obedience is not a bad word. Now, we said this and talked about this way early on in Romans because in chapter one, Paul says this. He talks about bringing the Gentiles to obedience of faith. And he's going to bring it up again in chapter 16. This, 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 this closing remark, he's going to talk about bringing the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. What Paul means is belief in the gospel. Obedience of faith is responding to the gospel by faith and then living out that new life in light of the gospel. That's the obedience that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about religious um, uh, exercises that are devoid of the Spirit. He says, no, I'm going to only speak of what Christ has accomplished to, through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So as he's ministering to the non-Jewish people, he's seeing some respond. By the way, everybody responds to the gospel. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, you respond to the gospel. You either respond by rejecting it or by accepting it. There is no neutral ground. And more times that you respond by rejecting it, that just hardens your heart. That's Romans chapter one. You're suppressing the truth. But everybody responds to the gospel. What we want and see, what we pray for is that people would respond by faith or the obedience of faith. And Paul says, that's what I'm gonna brag on, where I've seen God bring about through me obedience of faith among these non-Jewish people. Now, how did, how did Paul minister to these people, the non-Jewish people? How did, how did he do it? How did God work in him? How did Christ work in him to accomplish this? One of them's by word and deed. Paul was instructing. Paul was teaching. So it bears repeating. If you want to proclaim the gospel, you have to use words or, or communication of some kind, right? And I say word, I clarify that because you can communicate the gospel through American Sign Language or, or some other kind of sign language. You can write it out, right? My point is you have to explain it. You have to instruct people in it, right? So this, this idea that um, I, I, I preach the gospel always and sometimes I use words, no. It sounds great, and you should live your life in a way that points people to God. But in order to proclaim the gospel, you must use words. You, you must explain the content of what God has done in Christ, because otherwise a person may look at your good deeds, they may look at the way you live your life and say, man, I want to be more like that person, and have no understanding as to why you are the way you are. And so then they're going to make conclusions as to, well, I probably should spend more time with people like that. Well, I should, I should probably do things that encourage me to be kind. I should probably just go serve more here, right? And they start building a list of doing good things. And it's all devoid of the Spirit, and it's all apart from the gospel. Always have to explain the gospel. And so Paul says it was by word and deed. And so as I lived among you, Paul's saying, not only did you hear me teach and instruct, and so some of these places that Paul went, he was there for like a year and a half. 
Can you imagine living day in and day out with people for a year and a half? You're working beside them and you're having conversations. When you gather on Sabbath, you're instructing uh, them in the, in the scriptures and you're helping them see Christ. And then you're, you're getting people responding to the gospel by faith. And so, so then you are, you are living alongside them, helping them understand how that changes things. Oh, you should treat your wife this way. How many wives do you have? Yeah, we need to talk about that, right? And, and hey, you can no longer go to this temple because the things you do at that temple are worshiping another God. You need to cut that out, right? And he's helping them see how the gospel, how Christ changes everything about their life. And he walks with them and he, and he lives with them. He says it's by word and deed. And you're like, yeah, I can get behind that. And then he says in verse 19, and by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, I did it by word and deed. Uh, it was by the power of signs and wonders. And so you can read about this in Acts. Just like the disciples of Christ, just like even go back further in the Old Testament, some of the, the, the prophets that, that God spoke through did signs and wonders. I think of like the Exodus story with, with Pharaoh. Right? I think of Elijah, some of his stories. You come to Jesus' day and, and Jesus is doing signs and wonders, right? Casting out demons, healing sick people, um, healing people who can't walk or can't see. Um, and then, then Jesus gives authority to his disciples and not just the 12, right? The 70 before that, right? He sends them out into all these places and they're casting out demons and they're healing and they come back amazed. Even the demons are subject in your name. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And, and you know, so he's, he's, he's seeing his followers do that. And so then now the apostles, the, the the formal 12, right, in the book of Acts, you see God working through them with signs and wonders and so doing many of the same things that Jesus did and other things, right? And so we just expect that this is something that God does. And Paul says, it was done among you and it was done among these places where I've gone. There have been signs and wonders. Now, comment about this because I know who my audience is. This is uncomfortable, right, because we've seen it abused, We've seen people use, uh, um, fabricate signs and wonders and they do it for their glory. And so then our temptation is just run away from that, right? Or explain it away. And, and there's just no justification for that. Instead, what we need to be able to do is discern what's of God and what's not. And so when people are doing signs and wonders and they're, they're getting the glory, well, that's, that's more likely than not, not God in them. And I say more likely than not because God can still do it through them even though they think they're getting the glory. God will still accomplish his purposes. But we've got to be able to discern, right? Signs and wonders, the purpose, signs and wonders, to authenticate the message of the gospel and to glorify the, the messenger, the Jesus, the gospel, right? The center. So to authenticate the message of the gospel and to glorify Jesus, the center of the gospel. None of that's changed. None of that's changed. So there are times and places where uh, missionaries uh, especially can tell you, hey, they've been, they've been proclaiming the gospel and they've seen signs and wonders and God uses them. There are, there are places here in the States where this can still happen and does happen, right? There, there, are things, there are times where God will choose in his own sovereignty to do signs and wonders for the sake of his glory and to bring people to Christ. I think about like Acts chapter, I think it's three, right? Where it's Peter and John and they're walking up to the temple and um, there's that, that guy who can't walk and he heals them. And then guess what happens next? Now there's a crowd and guess what they do with the crowd? Proclaim the gospel. That's signs and wonders being used to the glory of God to proclaim the gospel, to authenticate the message, to point to Jesus, the center. Right, Paul says that happened, right? There's no reason for us to think biblically that that's not still happening. 
that that can't still happen, that God won't still do that. And the question is, do we pray for that? Like, I mean, if I want to see someone come to Christ, I, I want to see God do it by whatever means necessary. Word, deed, God, hey, if you need, to, you need to drop something before them so that they know that this is you and there's no question about it, do that. You guys all pray that kind of stuff when you're praying for people. When you're praying that God would just change someone's heart or help them to see, I know that especially the, the ones you most love, you're saying, God, even if it means this, right? And Paul's saying God did that. And then he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He separates that. I find that intriguing that Paul lists by signs and wonders and then by the power of the Holy Spirit as separate things. Not because he thinks that the signs and wonders were separate from the power of the Holy Spirit, but he just means the signs and wonders, the power of the signs and wonders, that's one thing. And then the power of the Holy Spirit includes something else as well. And then he says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul sees himself in the greater purpose of God's gospel. He says, I've traveled to all these places. This is a far off place from where the known world was. It's like the far edge. He says, I've, I've gone there. I've gone to all these places in between Jerusalem and here, and I've done it to fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul saw the purpose of his life. He's living in light of the greater purpose of the gospel of God so that others might know the gospel. He goes on, he says, and thus I make my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul says, I'm going to the places where the gospel has not been proclaimed, which is why he hasn't been to Rome yet, he's gonna tell them. Because the gospel's been proclaimed there, the church is established there. He says, this is what's delayed me from getting to you. I'm going to the places where the gospel, where Christ has not, not already been named, where there's unreached people. Listen, there are unreached people today. Now, it's not necessarily the same groups in Paul's day, but there are continuously unreached people today. There are people in far-off countries, far-off islands, absolutely, tribes, yep, you name it, right? Things like that. There are people here in the States who are unreached. There are generations being born to people who are atheistic, who do not proclaim Christ, who do not raise their kids around the gospel or around the church. And these kids are growing up and they've never heard the gospel. They've never seen Christian living. They are, they are living their life not knowing who Christ is. They are unreached. They're here, right? And Paul's saying, I make it my, my goal to go where Christ has not already been named. Now, I identify with this in some way because you guys don't know this, but before I came here, I did five years of seminary after Bible college. For the first four years of seminary, I was not coming to be a pastor of an established church. For the first four years of seminary, Lindsay was on board with this. We were going to go plant churches in New England, Morgantown, West Virginia, and North. That was the plan. That's what we were working for. I took classes specifically geared towards that. I went through trainings on church planting specifically for that purpose. For four years out of five in seminary, I was going to plant churches. Why? Because one, I wanted to go to a place. I was in Texas, right? And there's churches everywhere in Texas. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be where there's, where there's churches that, that are there and they're already proclaiming the gospel. I didn't want to be in a place where there's, there's an oversaturation. I wanted to go where there was a greater need for the gospel. And so New England is a very unchurched uh, uh, area, as some of you know, right? It's cold. It's hard. And then the military entered in the, the last year of seminary, and we felt the Lord was leading us towards that ministry as well. And so through prayer and wisdom and counsel... Uh, my pastor at the time at the, the church, he said, you know, I was told him we were looking at church planting. He says, your wife's already going to feel like a single mom when you church plant. You go in the military, that could add that, you know, 
extra, heap, heap on more pressure for her to be a single uh, wife and mom when you go to the military. So he said, you might consider that. And that's how the Lord changed our direction. And we ended up here. And thank God, right? I still haven't lost my desire to, what, what, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's what you better have said. <laughs> Darn it, you know? Um, so I still haven't lost my desire for this. I still want to see Christ's name, but now where I am here, how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. Some of you are called to the nations. Some of you are called to go proclaim Christ where he's not been named. Oh, I can't move right now. I can't, I can't. That's fine. You may not have to because sometimes the nations are right in your backyard. Sometimes the nations are just in the town next door or in the city that you have access to. How can God use you to, to preach the gospel to the nations? Some of you are interacting with people right here in your communities that are unreached for the gospel. You have kids that have grown up in environments where they don't know the gospel. They've been so sheltered from, from uh, anyone who could proclaim the gospel to them that all they know is their parents' atheism or their parents' uh, other religion that they might proclaim. You have people right here. Lord, who are they? Show me who they are so that I might go and proclaim the gospel where Christ has not already been named. Amen. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, he's going to quote from Isaiah here again, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul sees himself in the greater picture of the gospel of God. He says, I'm doing this because those who have never been told, this is right out of Isaiah, where Isaiah, again, God is telling um, the people that he is going to do this work where there are going to be people who don't previously know about God who are going to know about God. Those who have never heard, been told of them, will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel. So what is your purpose? Right? We do that so that others might be acceptable to God. We do that so others might know the gospel of God. Now, we're talking about disciple-making. We're talking about making disciples of all nations. Parents, your first priority is to disciple your kids. If, if you're not discipling your kids, then you shouldn't be discipling other people, right? You, your first priority. Now, I'm not saying don't disciple other people. I'm saying disciple your kids. See that as these are, your kids are not born to you believers. They're not. They're born to you little sinners, Right? <laughs> And if you don't believe that, just let them get a month or two old and you see that defiance in their eyes. You do. We remember the day our firstborn. Where are you at? We remember the day we saw it in your eyes, little sinner. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I used to bounce her on my knee and say, you're just a little sinner. Yes, you are, you know. And, and then we just proclaim the gospel to them. Your children are your primary means, uh, focus of disciple making. Disciple. You should be pouring into them. Don't assume that they're believers. They're not. Until they respond to the gospel by faith. So do what you can in word and in deed. You're praying for your kids. You're asking the Lord to do what he needs to do in order to get their attention and help them to understand the gospel so that they might understand God's love for them in Christ and then in turn respond to the gospel in faith and love God. You're, you're praying for that, right? You're modeling that. You can do that and still make disciples of other, other people as well, but you gotta figure out how that looks. But don't forsake your family. Grandparents, I'd say it to you too. Maybe you're a grandparent and you've got kids who are doing a great job doing it. Maybe you can support them. Maybe you've got kids who have no vision for it. You do it. Great grandparents, if I've got any of you in here, I do, I do. 
I know some of y'all are doing it. I know you're doing it, right? You've got to have a vision for the generations beyond you, beyond your grandkids. What about your great-grandkids? What about your great-great-great-great-great-grandkids? Are you thinking that far down the line? I don't, right? But if I can, I can make disciples now of my kids and then they will pass that on and make disciples of their kids, make disciples of their kids, make disciples of their kids. I'm impacting generations, right? I've got to be thinking that if this world continues, generations are gonna be born. Am I doing what's necessary? That God will then use that to bring about faith in the gospel. Co-workers, who are your co-workers? Who are your classmates? Who are your neighbors? Members of your family? Extended members of your family? Aunts, uncles, cousins, things like that. Right? God has placed people in your life and you're connected to people in your life and he wants you to live your life for the greater purpose of God's gospel. How can we do that? So Lord, would you show us how we do that? Show us what has our name on it today.